The rest of you, if you have your Bibles, I um, invite you to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're working our way through the uh, scriptures, uh, this particular book. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the sides of the tech booth back there. You can go grab one, and uh, it's the same translation that I'll be reading from uh, this morning. Feel free to go grab one. If you need to borrow it, please borrow it. If you need to keep it because you don't have a Bible that you can read and understand, it's a great translation, and consider that our gift to you. We will order more Bibles. That's not a problem. Uh, how many of you have ever broken a bone before? And then you end up, you know, in a ER or some other place, and you have to, you know, get it squared away. And then they typically put something on it, depending upon how, you know, how serious it is and that kind of thing. And you see you back here in four weeks or six weeks or whatever. Uh, when I was younger, I played a lot of basketball. I know you can tell, but uh, when I was younger, <laughs> why are you laughing? I played a lot of basketball. I've broken every one of my fingers and both of my thumbs at least twice uh, in the midst of basketball. And um, of course, when you're you know 16 and smart, uh, you would do crazy stuff like eat a popsicle, put a popsicle stick on there, tape it up, and go back to it, right? Because I ain't letting no broken finger keep me out, you know that kind of thing. Uh, and this is in, inevitably, you know, it didn't quite go back right. Like this one right here, this finger. If you ever look, if you ever come close to me, and you're like. Hey man, show me that finger thing again. Uh, this one actually twists this way because it didn't get set right at some point. Um, and there are other quirks. And th the whole point of buddy taping them together so you can keep playing or whatever it, is to keep playing, right? I mean, like, you, you do your best, at least I did at 16 because I was so smart. You do your best to set it in order, in order that it can get healthy so you can keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. Order, health, Keep doing what you're supposed to be doing. This is exactly where we ended last week. Paul is speaking of this as, um, to, the, to the church in Ephesus to the, in this letter to Timothy. He's speaking about church order to promote church health, to propel the gospel outward. And don't make a mistake here. This is what it's always about is getting the gospel out because Ephesus was full of lost people who didn't know Jesus and uh, apart from him uh, were going to spend eternity separated from God. League City and Friendswood and Webster and Pearland and wherever else you come from, guess what? Full of lost people who don't know Jesus who, if they die, were to be, will be separated from him forever. They're separated now, but if they step into eternity separated from him, that, that's a forever kind of thing. And so um, hear me say, along with Paul, church order leads to church health, which propels the gospel outward, and that's what we're trying to do. That's what we're getting to. So today, I need to um, speak to this passage in 1 Timothy 3 about church order. He's spending some time on this, again, because he's wanting order to produce health, to propel the gospel outward. And, and um, as he does so, he, he delineates or identifies really two kind of realms of leadership in the church. And I want to speak to them before we read them in the text so that everybody's kind of on the same page. Uh, the, the first order uh, is the, um, these two order, spheres, if you will, realms of leadership in the church. The first one is elders. This is a plurality of godly men uh, who are dedicating themselves to three basic things. I learned them this way. Three Ds. Uh, first of all, doctrine. That they would have, they would dedicate themselves to healthy doctrine and, and overseeing that the church has healthy doctrine. Um, here in 1 Timothy 1, we'll see it again in chapter 5, we'll see it again in chapter 6, we'll see it again in chapter 4 as a matter of fact. There are people who come to church and they say things that aren't true about God and about Jesus and that kind of thing. So part of it is, is that the, the this, this plurality of godly men, this group of men 
charged as elders by God, uh, they are given to, to protecting the health uh, of the doctrine of the church because it's through this healthy doctrine that good things happen. Secondly, they're charged with a direction, meaning that they uh, are, okay, God, here we are in this particular context. In, in Timothy's case, here we are in Ephesus. How do we reach the Ephesian culture? Here we are in Southeast Houston. How do we reach Southeast Houston with the gospel? This is what uh, elders are in charge of. And then lastly, uh, discipline, that if somebody um, can, lives in an unrepentant way, continually in sin, they step into their world and say, hey, listen, come back to Jesus. Come back to Jesus. Repent of that. And if they continue to do that, then they lead the church in saying, we're removing uh, this person from the umbrella of protection that the church provides. It's a devastating step, but it's sometimes uh, something that has to be taken. So uh, doctrine, direction, and then lastly, discipline. That's elders, this plurality of godly men. The, the second sphere, or the second realm of leadership in the church is deacons. He's going to address that also. These are godly people who are given to service, and they are given to all sorts of service in the church. They play all sorts of roles in the church. Um, when you do, uh, when you look at Acts six, which is where the first deacons show up, uh, they are specifically responsible for helping food get to widows. But the role of the deacon expanded from there, and even as far as maybe 50 years later, just uh, 110, 120 A.D., you see a broad swath of ministries that the deacons uh, participate in, broad ways in which they serve. So. These are deacons, uh, godly people who are given to service. And again, they give themselves to all sorts of service-related roles in the church. Here's what's crazy, though. When you and I go to a conference or we stay at a thing or we go hear a guy speak and he speaks about, he or she speaks about leadership, we're inevitably listening for a plan, for a strategy, for a thing that we're supposed to go do, for a practice that we can change in our lives and it makes it better. That's what leadership literature is just full of. Paul's leadership literature has very little to say about that stuff. Because he knows that character is really what matters. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, is that character um, is leadership. And so uh, as we read this passage, what I want to do is give you a couple of just pointers on how to understand the passage, and also just identify these character traits that... that um, that are important here and, and that, that Paul delineates. These, these traits, they're not exhaustive, uh, but they are expected. So in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, now some of your translations may have something like bishop or something like that. Uh, the word overseer and the word pastor and the word elder are used interchangeably in the New Testament. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. So just to be clear, uh, um, you know, the, the call to this particular realm of leadership is a noble thing. It's not a matter of control. It's not a matter of, I want more influence. It's a noble thing. Um, and then he says, verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. That is a blanket umbrella kind of statement. And he's going to talk about what above reproach means, but that is an umbrella statement such that um, uh, if, if you are feel um, you know, called to be uh, a leader in this kind of way, to, to exercise leadership in this particular realm, um, that people ought not be able to say anything bad about you. That's, that's above reproach. And then he lists out these character traits. Um, he says, an overseer must be above reproach. That's that umbrella statement. He'll make a similar umbrella statement about deacons in just a minute. The husband of one wife, that's where he starts. The husband of one wife. Literally, the phrase is, a one-woman man. No kidding. I mean, that's literally, quite literally what the Greek language is. A one-woman man. Anybody remember the old country song? Yep. So this is, this is the kind of thing where you, you see a faithfulness in marriage. 
Why in the world would he start there? Well, certainly you have challenges in Ephesus and in other places. We have our own challenges in our own culture. But the thing is, there is a core responsibility that he has taken to be faithful in what is most important. Faithfulness in marriage. And then he goes on from there. Just pause here. Because he says one woman, man, I just want to be clear here. This is especially true of a person's new life in Christ, although it does not say that um, he can never be divorced. The question is not one of circumstance, related to circumstances. The question is related to character. Is this person a person of character? Is he a one woman man? Does that express itself in his home? Then he says, secondly, sober-minded. We're just going to read all of this, and I'm going to try to keep my comments brief um, so we can get to this summary, but sober-minded. Sober minded is somebody who's clear-headed and who's serious about the leadership role um, that he's been called to. You got respectable next. Respectable. Somebody who has poise. I I keep missing this. I missed this in the 832. Sorry. Self-controlled. Self-controlled. I skipped over that. Self-controlled because it's a challenge. Anybody have this moment? It's a challenge to hold your tongue sometimes. Anybody? No? No? A couple of you volunteered. A couple of you elbowed a couple people. You know, that's so... Sometimes when they come at you, everything in you wants to just come right back. Self-control. Respectable. There's a certain poise and an appropriate decorum about who they are. Hospitable, it says. Um, They had, back in the first century, um, you know, they oftentimes, elders had to open up their homes to host people, visiting ministers or you know, people who just were down and needed a hand, people who were spiritual seekers, they often hosted them in their homes. Looks a little bit different in terms of our particular culture, but um, the, the idea of this open-handed, open-hearted generosity towards people, that's not different. Hospitable. It's so important because relationships uh, are so important. And then it says able to teach. Clearly, it's uh, just one more time, it is able to teach. It doesn't say he has to be teaching on a week in, week out basis. He has to teach a Sunday school class. It doesn't say anything about that. But he has to be able to speak in a way that will help others understand um, what the scripture requires of them, what God requires of them. And he has to speak in a way that helps them grow. In other words, we're looking for a man who is of the word and who can speak the word. That's what we're after, who can help people grow, teach. And then he, he moves to the negative in verse 3, not a drunkard. Uh, one more time, again, we, we want to draw the lines where the Bible draws the lines. You know, not a drunkard. It doesn't say don't drink, but, you know, of course, those two things, that's, there's all sorts of discussion I'm not going to get into right now, but not a drunkard. Why? But because when alcohol is in control, you're not. Self-control, right? That's what it said earlier. And when alcohol is in control, uh, you are not. And so uh, maybe they, and, and maybe um, this kind of thing actually uh, shows us a, a little bit about their personality. Maybe they've, they've got this addictive kind of personality. Or, or maybe they, they drink to be accepted by the crowd. Neither of those go particularly well when it comes to leadership, uh, leadership in the church. And then he moves on, not a drunkard, not violent, not violent, but gentle. Because there are some things, if you lead in a church, if you lead anywhere, that is true. There are some things, if you lead in a church, that will make you really mad. Anybody with me on this? You, you lead a classroom, uh, you lead uh, you know, at the office, you lead anybody anywhere, there are some things that will make you mad. Just this week, one of our, he was in the 830 service, one of our guys walking down the hall, dropping his kid off at uh, his kid's. And I'm in there, somebody had come after one of our people, and I'm like, oh, no, no, no. And so I'm in there, I mean, I'm not typing an email, I'm hammering it. He goes, hey, man, how's it going? I'm fine. What? 
You okay in there? Steam's coming out of your ears and your hair's on fire. I'm just mad that this is the case, you know, that they're coming after my people. You're not going to do that. That's not okay. There are things in leadership that will just make you mad. And so what? not given to violence. That's what it says. Not, not someone who is given to violence. Although there are things make you mad, not violent. Uh, th- uh, next, not quarrelsome. Quarrelsome because arguing for its own sake or to be right, sometimes it's a sign of narcissism or at least narcissistic tendencies. Because I gotta be right, I gotta be right, I gotta be right. Um, let's see here, moving on here. Oh, at, at the very last of verse three, not a lover of money, not a lover of money. Uh, people use the gospel and use God to make money. You see them show up on TV and say, if you'll sow this little seed, I promise you, God will bless you. Da, 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 da. Listen, hucksters. Charlatans, if you didn't get the first two. People who love money, here's the thing. If you love money, you don't love God. That's, that's the deal. And that's not me talking. That's Jesus. Jesus said this, you can't serve two masters. You'll either love the one and hate the other, or you'll uh, despise the one and be devoted to the other. You can't serve God and money. That's what he said. You can't do it. So not a lover of money. <clears throat> then... And again, that goes with that whole generosity thing. Then he says in verse 4, He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? We're talking about somebody who takes care of their home, uh, who's responsible in their home for leading their family well. Uh, they, They do so with dignity and with a proper use of and a proper respect for authority. They're not some, you know, authoritarian figure, it's my way or the highway kind of thing. Uh, but their, their kids and their entire house, they're responsive uh, to the authority uh, that God's given, and given to him. Uh, as, as the pastor that I grew up, he came and preached here, um, you know, back in the summer, uh, Barry Camp. He used to say, if it ain't working at home, don't export it. Seems reasonable to me. Moving on, verse uh, 6. He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Leadership has at its core this temptation to pride. And so a recent convert um, can't. Here's what we need in leadership. We need people, we need men in, in, in this elder sphere of leadership who have walked a walk and been knocked down a few times, knocked down enough uh, to get up humble. That's what we need. We need people who've been men in in this leadership realm of of elders who've been knocked down enough and can get up humble. How many of you can think of someone who uh, was a celebrity, had some name, and they had this faith experience, this kind of moment where God drew them to himself, and then, I mean, not like it felt like 60 seconds later, they get trotted out on some stage somewhere to share their testimony because they're famous. But then they end up in rehab the next week or whatever, right? And, and so what does that do for the cause of Christ when somebody who is a celebrity and has it, I'm not saying it's not genuine, but has this faith experience, gets trotted out too early as a voice for or a leadership role for um, uh, some organization or some church. And then they end up in a bad place. You're like, oh, oof. So that's why it's not a recent convert. You get, to give leadership to the, ch- to the church in this particular realm, you need someone who's been knocked down a few times. Um, and then lastly, in verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. Why does, it, why does it matter what outsiders think? Because the person who leads the organization or leads the church in this case, the person who gives leadership to that reflects 
the, the church and the message of the church to the culture, um, and, and um, he represents that same message and, and, uh, to, to this culture. And so um, what they reflect and what they represent then really, really matters. By a, a, an elder's life, by a leader's life in the church, uh, the gospel should go forth. They need to lead by example and be, have, be well thought of by outsiders. There should not be a person who looks at a pastor and goes, Yee. No, I don't want to follow that guy. Because what they're really saying is, I don't want to follow Jesus. And that's, that's a bad play right there. He moves then to deacons, this second sphere, second realm. Uh, he says deacons like, likewise must be dignified. And dignified is that same umbrella statement. For elders, it was above reproach. Deacons, it's dignified. And he says, starts with not double-tongued. Not saying one thing and then doing another. We call that hypocrisy. Not saying one thing in one place and then saying something different in another place. We call that lying. God doesn't like either one of those. Not double-tongued. You can count on them. They're as good as their word. And then he says, not addicted to much wine. Again, we've talked a little bit about that already. Uh, not greedy for dishonest gain. Uh, again, we talked about you can't love money um, and God at the same time. Verse 9, they must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. Hold the mystery of the faith, meaning they are grounded. These people who are serving in these capacities are grounded in their faith because there will be times when you ask God to do this and he does that instead. Or you plan, and you plan for and you pray for this to happen and that instead is what goes down. And what do you experience in that moment? You carry around this disappointment. You want somebody serving in the church who, even though they've been disappointed, gets back up and goes, it hurt, but let's keep going. It hurt, but let's keep moving forward. And, and that leads to the next one. He says in verse, uh, let me get here, <clears throat> excuse me, verse 10, and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Why tested? Why is that so important? Because some people can serve for a little while in their own strength and then they peter out, right? They just fail. The kind of service that a deacon does is a service over and over and over again. It's service and perseverance at the same time. And it's service to people who don't even necessarily want your service. And sometimes it's thankless. There were folks in here earlier, don't know if you saw them or not, they came and set up chairs so that you people on the back row, all you sinners back there, y'all could have extra... I'm sorry. I mean, you, you nice people back there on the back. So all of you could have seats. That's a thankless job. No, not one person said, oh, man, thank you so much for setting up my seat. They just do it because this is what needs to happen. This is the kind of service that we're talking about over and over and over again. Not once and then, or, or just a few times and then kind of quitting. Oh, it's, not, it's not really my thing. But over and over and over and over and over again. Thankless, selfless, and, and they, thus, they need to be tested first. In verse 11, uh, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let's pause here. Uh, this is like one of the two places that I think the ESV may have mistranslated that because uh, the, the, it's actually women. Women likewise must be dignified. And he uses that same umbrella statement. So women who serve in the church must be dignified, not slanderers, meaning they don't speak to others or uh, speak ill of others. Uh, they, they speak to people before they speak about them, not slanderers, but sober-minded. We've already talked about the clear-headedness of that and faithful in all things. That's faithful in all things is so important. Why? Because uh, a person who serves in the church in any capacity ought to be able to say this, God, what, Lord, whatever you require me to do, I will do. Whatever you require me to do, I will do. 
We talked about this before where we just, we, in our lives, we put our yes on the table and then look at God and go, okay, so there's my answer. What's your question? Here's my yes. God, I'm giving you yes, permission. I'm saying yes, I'm, I, I am accepting. I'm saying yes to you. Now, what's the question? What is it? That's what faithful in all things means. Um, and may that be true of all of us in any situation that we have. And then he finishes here, uh, verse 12, let deacons each be the husband of one wife, one woman, man again, uh, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So by their serving, they also grow spiritually. So here's what I want to do. I want to try to summarize this in a picture that will hopefully be um, helpful to you. Uh, and that picture looks like this. I used to do this conversation a lot when I was in college ministry with students who thought that they were called to full-time ministry. And it may be a little harder to read um, than I wanted it to be, but um, the, the center of this wheel is relationship with Jesus. That's the center. And, and I, I want to emphasize that because there are all sorts, of, all sorts of things, all sorts of options, all sorts of cultural um, influences that would want to claim center place in our lives. But if we're going to be people who are in this not only today, but for the long haul, our lives need to center on Jesus. He needs to be the hub around which the rest of our lives go. And specifically, when it comes to ministry, things that we get to do in the world that matter for the sake of eternity and for the sake of the kingdom of God. If our relationship with Jesus is not at the center of that, if we've dislocated it um, or we've replaced it with something else, we're in big trouble. Big trouble. Our relationship with Jesus needs to be at the center. Um, there are people who have relationship with the church, and that's what they put at the center. There are people who have, um, I get acclaim and notoriety because I do these things. That's what they put in the center. None of that stuff's going to last, folks. None of it's going to last. Right there at the center. Right there at the center is our relationship with Jesus. So I would say this to everyone in here. Before you try to go out and think about serving, before you try to claim some uh, leadership role somewhere, listen, let me ask you this question. Is your relationship with Jesus at the center? Of your world? Does everything else revolve around it? Is it the thing that keeps, keeps you spinning and on course? And then you've got these, I, this, I summarized those 13 verses into these five spokes. Uh, the, at the top there is the, is the spoke of respectability. You are a person that somebody wants to follow. A leader who doesn't have followers is just a guy on a walk, right? In this case, are you respectable? Are you, are you a person who um, is, is somebody that you want? These people want to follow. You're respectable. Uh, the next one down, um, as we go around clockwise here, is faithfulness. Is your yes on the table and yes and yes and yes over and over and over again? Because sometimes faithfulness looks like saying yes when it's hard, and sometimes faithfulness looks like saying yes a thousand times. Sometimes faithfulness is saying yes when it's a big thing. You're like, okay, God, this is it. I'm going to do it. I, yes. And sometimes yes means I'm going to love my kids and pray for them daily. And every day in the grind when they talk back and eye roll and do all the crazy stuff that kids are prone to do because they're sinners and need Jesus just like me, I'm going to continue to love them and pray for them. Sometimes it's the endurance part that's the hardest part of faithfulness. Not N not the saying yes, the endurance part. 
Uh, the third thing uh, around there is this generosity. I mentioned this a while ago. Just this generosity of heart and hand. You open yourself. Hey, you know, all of my stuff is not really my stuff. It's God's anyway. I'm going to be open-hearted and open-handed towards the people who are around me and try to embrace them as much as I can. Uh, fourthly, self-control as we go around there. Um, self-control. I mean, everything in culture says act upon your impulses. Fulfill your desires. Make yourself happy. And God says self-control is the way to make yourself happy. Self-control is the way to, to live well in this world. All of the forces of culture are blowing differently. And God says, exercise self-control. And the last one is purity. Same thing. All the cultural winds are blowing differently. So much so that, you know, you get into conversation with people and they just expect you to agree with them about what is moral and what is allowable or what's not really that big of a deal. And God says, all of that stuff, that's what separates people from him. It's called sin. That's what he labels it. So we live in purity. And then the outside part is the part that gets all the press, right? I mean, it, this ministry to the world is where it actually interacts with the world. It's where the gifts and the skills of people are on display. And gifts or skills are amazing. They're incredible, right? I mean, God gives these things to us. Um, but these gifts and skills, that's where it makes contact. It's what gets all the press. But... That, that's not ultimate. That's not ultimate. So I would say to you, if you have any sort of leadership capacity or, or place in your life, if you have any sort, then you focus on your relationship with Jesus and you focus on the character because that outside stuff, ministry of the world, man, it'll come, it'll go, it'll change. And let me just give you a couple of things here. Without the center, without the center of our relationship with Jesus, we will get off course super fast or we won't go at all. If, if, if a wheel doesn't have a center to hold on to, man, you may be able to roll it just a minute, but it won't, it won't last very long. And if, you, if you've got a center and then you've got an outside, but you don't have the spokes, I mean, you ever try to ride a wheel without spokes? Like you may get, I mean, the very first bump that you hit, the whole thing gets crushed. How many people can we name? How many people can we name in ministry who started well, and the relationship seemed good, but the outside part outgrew their character. And the very first bump they hit, their life got crushed. This past week, I'm texting with another pastor here, a friend of mine here, and I said, man, I'm praying for all of us, this group of guys that we hang out with. Pastor, I'm like praying for all of us that we finish well, we get to the end, we're able to say we ran the course well. He wrote back, said, man, yes, we need one another, and I need you in my life, and I know you need me. And I said, yes, and I was named a guy who just resigned from this huge, awesome church uh, that God had done incredible things through because he just didn't make it. He just didn't make it. And I said to him, that scares the snot out of me. And he said, that scares me too. Let's be men whose ministry is not, is not larger than the character that God gives us. Amen. How many people do we know who bite? I mean, just get crushed under the weight of their calling because they don't have the character to sustain it. Um, here's, here's where we're going. This is it. for today. I mean, this is the thing I need you to get, that leadership is character. We talk about it in terms of skill. We talk about it in terms of prowess. We talk about it in terms of influence. And we talk about it in terms of organization on all of that stuff. No. Leadership is character. Here's why. Because character will keep you centered and supported. 
character will keep you centered and supported. Why does Paul focus all of his time on this? He doesn't talk about how to organize a church. He doesn't talk about which songs to sing. He doesn't talk about whether to have a stage or from the floor down here or anything. He, he just says, this is what a, a man of character, this is what a person who serves in the church, who leads in the church, this is what they're supposed to be. Leadership is character because character will keep you centered and it will keep you supported. I mean, you can ride for a while on a flat tire. You can't ride without a center or without these spokes of character. Secondly, character will guide you when life is unpredictable. Character will guide you when life is unpredictable. Anybody ever hit a, a bump? They, I mean, they had the best laid plans, right? And they hit a bump and all of a sudden the rest of the plans are out the door. Uh, you know, a couple of weeks ago was the 15th anniversary of 9-11, and I, you know, I read the accounts, fascinating stuff of some of the things that happened. One of the accounts that I read was particularly jarring to me, um, was a first-hand account, this guy did first-hand interviews of folks who were on Air Force One. They interviewed the pilot, and they interview, interviewed Andy Card, and the security officer, and all this kind of stuff, and they talked about their happenings, their stuff on 9-11, and all that kind of stuff. Here's the thing. You can like George W., you can hate him, you can love his politics, you cannot. I, that's not really the point. Nobody in America woke up that morning thinking, hey, some folks are going to hijack some planes and fly them into buildings. Nobody woke up that morning thinking about that. And yet, that's exactly what happened. What saw him as a leader through that day and the rest that followed? His character. Again, you can agree or disagree with the policies that followed, Fine. His character saw him through an unpredictable situation. And yours will too. Yours will too. Thirdly, um, leadership is character because character will sustain you when gifts and skills fail. When gifts and skills fail. When you are outpaced, um, when you don't know what to do, when skills and gifts, when they fail, character will sustain you again. You can ride for a while on a flat tire. And lastly, only character will last into eternity. Only character will last into eternity. Um, just give you a hint here. There will be no preachers in heaven. <laughs> I love the discomfort and then the, oh, snap, snap. Because we won't need preaching in heaven. It's not that there won't be preachers. That we don't need preaching in heaven. Gifts and skills are going to go away, aren't they? They will. Nobody's going to need to stand up and teach the Bible when we get there. Gifts and skills, but my character will extend into eternity. It will. So leadership, it is character. All the organizational stuff, yes. All the skills that go along with it, yes. All of those things, yes. Yes to all of that stuff, but... What's primary is the center of our relationship with God and the spokes that fall out of that, this character that God wants to develop in us. So I say to you, work on your relationship with God. Know him, know him well, know him intimately, and then develop character. Then he will give you this outside. He will give you this ministry. Um, a couple of questions that came up this week as I was thinking about it and talking this over with a couple of friends. Number one is this, why, why, why do I care? Why do I care about this stuff if I'm not called to ministry? Or if I'm not called to full-time church stuff. Here's what I'd say to you. Number one, read the list again. Which of these is a bad deal in any area of your life? 
I mean, is, is not loving money, is that a bad thing anywhere? Or is being respectable, is that a bad deal anywhere? Is having self-control, is that a bad thing at all anywhere? No. Paul even says about self-control and the other fruit of the Spirit, against such things there is no law. I mean, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And then, furthermore, why do I care if I'm not called to this, uh, called to church leadership? In what arena of your life, as I said, um, are, are these bad things? None. And it's further, what if you're called later? What if God brings you and, and says, hey, listen, I want you to serve and lead in this capacity? You've got to be ready for that. You've got to be ready for that. So develop character. Um, second question that came up is, well, but what if I've messed up? Like, what if my world, the choices that I made before, yeah. Let me introduce you to a guy named Paul. He wrote the letter that we're talking about here. Uh, before he was Paul, he was Saul, and he was a murderer and a persecutor of the church and had all sorts of terrible things that he did. And yet God, on the Damascus Road, reached down, grabbed his life, and saved him, rescued him, and developed character in him such that he became an apostle. Well, but that's Paul, right? Like that's before Jesus and then after Jesus. That's how we divide that. Well, um, I, I made all the mistakes I did when I was, you know, when I had Jesus. He had me. I still walked away. Great. Let me introduce you to a guy named Peter. Maybe you've heard of him. The night that Jesus was betrayed and was getting ready to go to the cross the next morning three times. Hey, don't you know that fella? Not me. Little girl walks up. Don't you know that fella? Not me. You need to leave me alone. You know that guy, right? No! You know, that kind of thing. Three times. And yet, in the span of about 50-ish days later, he's the spokesman for the church that launched it. God is in the business of restoring people and developing them and using them. And listen to me. No matter what your story is, he is in the business of restoring you developing you, and using you. It may be in some leadership capacity in the church. It may be in some other way. He is in the business of restoring people and developing people and using people. That's what he does. That's what he does. Um, give you these four applications. Number one, because I, I wanted to, like, how do you apply this passage? Number one, uh, if you want to serve in the church or in the world anywhere, pursue these things. Male, female, old, young, doesn't matter. If you want to be of use to God in the world or in the church or both, pursue these things. Look at the list and go, yes, this is what I want to do. There is no area of your life which these are bad things. Nobody's going to get to the end of their life and say, I wish I would have loved money more. Nobody's going to come to the end of their life and say, man, quarreling, that was a good plan for me. I should have done more of it on Facebook. Like I should have got into more arguments. No, nobody's, pursue these things. Set your heart and your life toward, how do I develop character? That's a sermon in a couple of weeks. <sighs> pursue these things, pursue them. Secondly, if you have men in your life, you are a man, you have men in your life, or you have men who will become, or you have people who will become men, sons, pray for them that they would be men like this. Pray that God would raise up a husband. He would raise up a son to um, do the very things that he's talking about. Above reproach, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and on and on and on and on and on. Pray for your, the men in your life to become these things. 
Everybody pursues them because God wants to use us all. And pray for, specifically for the men in your life who God may raise up to be elders someday. Pray for them. Thirdly, if you have women in your life or women-to-be, pray for them that they would marry somebody like this. You want to think about future sons-in-law? Pray for them that they would find someone and marry someone like this and they wouldn't compromise their standards for the sake of actually feeling accepted and loved. Lastly, you need to expect this from your church leadership. I'm putting my life out there and say, if my life doesn't match this, you need to come have a conversation with me. Expect this. Anybody who claims leadership in this church or any other church, you need to expect these kinds of things from your church leadership. Don't compromise because he's a nice fella. Don't compromise because he did this or that or he was there when that went down. Do not compromise on this. Expect this. Why is this so important? Because if you put the house in order in the church, then it gets healthy and then the gospel can go out. That's why it's that important. This week I had a conversation with one of our ladies. She said, hey, listen, thanks for the sermon last week. I'm still as confused as always, but thank you. I said, you're welcome, I am too. First Timothy 3 is coming up. She said, First Timothy 3 is coming up. I need you to know that that is, the, that is the chapter that God used to change my life. And I said, you've got to be joking. Like John 3.16? Okay, First Timothy 3? Are you kidding? What? She said, no, 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 you don't understand. Church, I grew up around, not in, but around, I'm not sure if what was slicker, their handshakes or their hair or the stuff that they were selling. I'm not sure which was slicker. And it always felt so slimy to me. And I sat in a church and I heard somebody say that leadership is character. And I thought to myself, if that's true, that is radically different than anything that I've experienced beforehand. And so if Jesus is expecting something radically different and not that stuff, then maybe he wants something radically different from me too. That was the very thing that God used to draw her to himself. It was the first step on her journey. You know what that is? That's order producing health and propelling the gospel to that lady right there, and maybe some of you or some of your friends. So let's be people like this. I'm going to pray.